Thank you, sir. Friends, good morning. Let me invite you to uh, turn open a copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, continue this chapter and Lord willing finish it today that we began uh, last Sunday morning. As you're turning there, I uh, just wanted to uh, uh, mention something that I hopefully will, hopefully will be encouraging to you. Uh, as, we, as Jamie mentioned, we hope to wind down from our COVID restrictions, and it's our intention to meet for uh, a first Sunday fellowship beginning in August. So uh, hopefully that will be a, a good thing, and I uh, encourage you to plan ahead for that. Lord willing, that will take place uh, first Sunday in August. All right, we want to uh, continue uh, studying uh, the Holy War, and we are in chapter 13 uh, of this portion of the book of Revelation, and our section today uh, begins in verse 11 and runs through verse 18. So let me read this portion of scripture, and please do follow along in your copy. The word of God says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The word of God. May he bless this portion of his word, and may he help us as we look into this challenging passage. Let's pray and ask him to guide us. We do, Lord Jesus, pray for a fresh uh, quickening of your spirit to open our eyes and our ears to truth, and I pray that you would strengthen me to proclaim this, uh, your word, and Lord, that we would hear it. Uh, press the truth into our hearts. May it be the living and active sword, sharper than any double-edged blade. Use it in our lives this morning. Savior, we pray through Christ. Amen. All right, I'm missing my clicker. Sorry. Pause while we adjust our accoutrements. Sorry, guys, to catch you off guard. 
Thank you, kind sir. It doesn't really click at all. It's a metaphor. So commenting on the letters of the Apostle Paul, his fellow apostle, the Apostle Peter, wrote these words. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that is, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This verse always gives me hope. <laughs> if some of Paul's writings left his fellow apostles scratching their heads, uh, I don't feel so bad when some of his statements have the same effect on me. I have hope. And Revelation chapter 13, though not written by Paul, certainly falls in the same category uh, as these things Peter said. There are some things in them hard to understand, uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist of their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Even such a person as uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, he's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary up in Michigan, confesses this when we come to the chapter, this chapter of Revelation. He says, chapter 13 is one of the most difficult chapters in Revelation. The main teaching of this chapter is quite plain, but some of the details seem mysterious and obscure. Uh, a scholar writing a generation before Dr. Beakey, William Hendrickson, said this uh, of these verses that we're in today. He says, this is perhaps the most difficult paragraph in the entire book of Revelation. The main ideas are clear. The details are obscure. We emphasize that in the explanation of the details, certainty is wholly lacking. So, encouraged by the admissions of those two men, uh, this morning, I hope to give you a reasonable explanation of these verses, as well as an explanation that's in keeping with the way we've been interpreting the book of Revelation all along. Well, how have we been interpreting, interpreting the book of Revelation up to this point, Pastor Rob? Well, let me just remind you briefly of three key things that we've tried to keep in mind, or that I've been reminding of you throughout this book of Revelation. First, it is highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. Lots and lots of symbols that John draws from the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, why would we follow this method of treating it as very symbolic? Because the book of Revelation begins like this. Consider chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, uh, gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That underlined phrase in the slide behind me, he made it known, could be translated, he communicated it through symbols. This is a very reasonable way to understand it. The ancient world used it like this all the time, revealed through symbols. And so that's why we say this book is very uh, symbolic, filled with symbols from the Old Testament. And that's why I've, I've treated it this way, in particular because verse 1 instructs us to. 
We've also been interpreting Revelation as describing events throughout this age, not just a future period of time that's referred to as the tribulation, seven years that many believe still lies in the future. Uh, our point, my point, has been to, to say that really the things we're reading here describe events that have taken place since the ascension of Jesus Christ to the return of Jesus Christ. And they can appear more than one time, many of these. There's one more thing we've had in mind as we have written the book. It's not one long timeline, beginning uh, with the early church, going up to the return of Christ in past. It's actually seven timelines covering the same period of time. Uh, and each one repeats and covers the same exact period of time. It's written in a cycle, seven cycles. Uh, and we're in the fourth of these seven cycles. So the past several Sundays, we've been in a section, this section, this fourth middle section called the Holy War. Many see chapter 12 and 13 and 14 as really the main part of the book. Uh, the, they call it the theological center. Uh, because these three chapters give us a behind-the-scenes look at, at what's taking place throughout this age, behind world events. Uh, we've, uh, we've seen different characters involved in the holy war that's being fought through this age. And up to this point, we've seen four main characters in the holy war. Chapter 12 began with the woman. Uh, we described the woman as faithful Israel, spiritual Israel, God's covenant people of both Old and New Testament eras. We saw next the dragon, the red, the great red dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, was introduced. Secondly, we saw the woman's male child, Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Last week, we were introduced uh, to uh, the beast from the sea, and failing to destroy the Messiah, the red dragon, the great red dragon, and his fury made war on the followers of Christ. And, and this beast from the sea is one of the instruments that Satan uses to make war on the saints. If you weren't here last week, we defined the beast from the sea this way. This is from William Hendrickson. The seaborn beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments of the world throughout history. Now, this is a recurring thing. We've seen the beast rise up several times. There is a possibility that there might be one final incarnation of the beast, as we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, the man of sin. That could be a, an institution. It could be an individual. We're, we're not sure. But this beast reoccurs. Well, here we are today, and we're introduced to yet another character in the Holy War, and that character is the beast from the earth uh, in our passage. And the verses before us reveal five characteristics of the beast from the earth, or the second beast, uh, if you prefer. And the first characteristic we come to is the appearance of the beast. Uh, first, I want you to see its innocent appearance, and look in your Bible with me at verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, 
It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Note the sharp contrast between last week's beast and this week's beast. Uh, Remember the first beast appeared as a hideously terrifying creature with seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns. Uh, It had the fearsome appearance of a leopard, a bear, and a lion, but not the second beast. The second beast appears to be actually quite likable. Second beast has the appearance of a lamb, a male lamb with only two horns, which is normal. When the first beast had a terrifying appearance, the second beast looks quite harmless, lovable, and attractive, according to one scholar. And another says the beast looks very innocent, a nice little lamb, a pet for the children. So to begin with, uh, we uh, see its innocent appearance. Uh, we see the innocent appearance of this beast from the earth. Uh, the second thing we see here is its deceptive speech. This second beast is anything but innocent. Uh, we see its true character revealed through its deceptive speech. Look at verse 11 with me again. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. When it says it spoke like a dragon, it doesn't mean that it had a ferocious-sounding voice like you might hear from a dragon in a TV or, or movie, the dragon in The Hobbit, for example. It's, it spoke like a dragon means that it spoke like the dragon, the devil. Uh, this lamb-like beast spoke the same way that the dragon speaks, and the dragon speaks with lies. Uh, Jesus, recall what he said. He was speaking to the Pharisees in John 8. He said, you are of your father, uh, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Uh, Another version says he's speaking his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This beast speaks like the dragon speaks, with lies and deceptions. And, And later in the book, we'll see this beast from the earth, the second beast, referred to as the false prophet. He's filled with falsehood and deception. That's the second thing to see about Uh, this uh, appearance. He speaks, or it speaks, uh, with deceptive speech. There's a third thing I want you to see uh, about its appearance, and that is its earthly wisdom. Uh, The beginning of verse 11, the first phrase of that verse says, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. James chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that the earth is the source of unspiritual and demonic wisdom. Uh, This beast then stands in opposition uh, to all that is heavenly, uh, in opposition to uh, to everything that comes from heaven. What he speaks, this beast, it's not only deceptive, but it's also earthly and sensual and demonic, as James 4.15 describes. So because of this, uh, 
this description, many scholars conclude that the second beast described here represents false religion and false philosophy that takes place and occurs throughout this era, this age, this gospel era that we lived in. Again, William Hendrickson, uh, who I referred to earlier and referred to a lot, he defines or describes the beast this way. The second beast is the false prophet. It symbolizes false religion and false philosophy in whichever form these appear throughout the entire dispensation. Now let me add to that a little bit from another man. Uh, he says he, personifi he personifies secular philosophies. That is the worldly theories of knowledge that influence the thinking and actions of the masses. His purpose is to set the whole world against God and his Christ, his revelation, and his people. So think of this. The first beast's actions are aimed at the physical body, the persecution of Christ's church. The second beast's actions are aimed at the mind uh, to uh, influence people's mind away from Christ. Uh, the first beast's weapon was power. The second beast's weapon was propaganda. Concerned families that were participating in this government program uh, waited for their sick or disabled relatives to board the bus that would take them to a hospital. And at this hospital, uh, once they arrived, these relatives would receive treatment appropriate to their illness or their disability. And for this government service, all that was required would they pay a fee for their their relatives' room and board to be treated there. And all this was provided through the generous hands of the Nazis. Letters from home asking about the treatment and recovery of their loved ones went unanswered. Because in reality, their loved ones were not taken to a hospital this bus took them to the gas chamber. How could any person in their right mind believe that the Nazis would treat and care for their loved ones? Part of the answer lies in these large gray buses that were used uh, for this program. Uh, commonly seen, commonly used to transport the patients, the name across the side uh, read, Charitable Ambulance. Dr. Beakey comments, the two beasts which look so different warn us not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. The devil can be perfectly beastly at times, but he can also be positively charming. It is easy to recognize an attack of the devil when he comes at you as a beast with seven heads and ten horns or as a roaring lion. But it is not so easy to recognize Satan in the guise of a lamb. Some of us are woefully ignorant when it comes to discerning truth from error. 
Never truer than it is today. The need for us to discern the lies of the beast. These false religions and uh, false philosophies that float around the air like the air we breathe in the United States. How? How do we learn to discern between the lies of the beast and uh, what, what's real, what's true? We learn to discern the lies of the beast, the subtle lies he tells by becoming thoroughly acquainted with reality. By becoming thoroughly acquainted with what is true. This is the truth. This is what's real. And Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So can I ask you how well acquainted you are with reality? How well acquainted are you with truth? Can you grasp the lies of the beast when you hear it on TV? You have to become familiar with this in order to do that. This truth that says it will renew your mind and transform your life. So if you let me get very personal for just a moment, how much time did you spend this week in the truth? Minutes. Seven minutes? A minute a day? Do you think that's enough to, to counteract the onslaught of falsehood you hear through the media? Did you read any of Paul's letters that describe the, the real condition of the human soul? as separated from God and at war with Him? Did you read in here that everyone is not actually okay? Your ability to discern the lies and the deception of this lamb-like beast are directly related to how much time you spend absorbing the truth of the Word of God. Thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist writes, that I might not sin against thee. Your word makes me wiser than my counselors, he says later in that psalm. So here's the truth. Many of you have it in your lap right now. You're looking at it on your phone. And without this, without a steady diet of this truth into your soul, weaving its web through your brain, you'll be a sucker for the lies of the Lamb. So, this is the first characteristic of the beast, his appearance. It's innocent, but it's deceptive. He speaks like the dragon. He lies. And he's from the earth, and his wisdom is earthly, sensual, and demonic. 
not heavenly. Let me point out a, another characteristic from the beast in our passage today. That's his purpose. Uh, the purpose of the beast. He, he bears the authority of the first beast, the beast from the sea, and, and leads the earth to worship the first beast. This is, uh, in a way, uh, something that's similar to the way the Holy Spirit works. Uh, glorifying Christ and revealing Christ and, and pointing people to Christ in, in, in a way that's similar to the, the second beast, who's later called the false prophet, works to direct people to the first beast, who's called the Antichrist. Uh, look in verse 12 uh, with me of chapter 13. It says, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence or, or on its behalf. The second beast exercises the authority of the first beast. Last week we saw in verse 4 that the first beast receives its authority from the dragon, from Satan himself. And verse 12 tells us that the second beast operates with the same kind of authority uh, that the first beast received from Satan. And the second half of verse 12 tells us what the second beast does with this satanic authority. It goes on to say, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. The purpose of the second beast is, is to promote the first beast. The, the second beast exercising satanic authority leads unbelievers to worship the first beast. What does that look like? Excuse me. <coughs> So in John's day, writing in the first century, uh, Rome attempted to solidify its very widespread territory and very diverse empire, people from all kinds of religions. They attempted to solidify them through religion. Uh, one person explains priests were appointed to implement the worship of Caesar. One such priest was in Asia Minor, where John had established churches. This priest had total control of religion in this region, and his whole purpose, despite appearing to be religious, was to unify the empires by bringing the people of Asia into compliance with Caesar's demands. That was John's day. What would this second characteristic look like in, in our day? In our era, the anti-Christian philosophies and ideas from the second beast lead unbelievers to bow to the anti-Christian governments and nations of the world. The second beast promotes uh, demonic and unbiblical ideas to unbelievers so that they'll fall in line with the governments and nations that stand opposed to Christ and his kingdom. The second beast influences and clouds the minds of unbelievers with its propaganda so that they will march to the orders of the anti-Christian state. And so, to be concrete, think how well the media and our government work together. Think how well much of our education system and the government work together, promoting similar agendas and ideas. Of course, the entertainment world will fit right in with that line of thinking. The first beast, false philosophy, false religion, leads the world to worship and fall in step 
with the anti-Christian governments uh, of the world. One man says, uh, the false prophet or the second beast as the mouthpiece of the Antichrist must control and govern the human mind. When it does, this man continues, all the institutions on earth will serve the Antichrist, the first beast. The institutions of communication, all the resources of, of governments and administrations, all the educational resources and all the commerce and industry must stand at the beck and call of the Antichrist. The, the, the most recent thought where we see all these different avenues, media, education, falling in line with what the government has declared has been the homosexual agenda. And you see how these areas, lockstep, fall in line with what the government has been trying to force on many in this country. So the second characteristic we see is, is the purpose of the beast. The, the, the beast leads uh, the unbelieving world to fall at the feet of the first beast, anti-Christian government. I want to go on to a third characteristic now, and that's the deception of the beast. Uh, the second beast deceives the enemies of Christ through false signs and wonders. Let me point out two things about this deception. And first of all, uh, I want you to notice the false miracles that the second beast performs in verse 13. Look at what it says in, in your Bible. It says, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. These signs that John's talking about here might refer to magic tricks, uh, gimmicks. It was common for the pagan priests of the first century to stoop to these things, to try to deceive the gullible masses to follow their false religion. On the other hand, great signs could also refer to miracles performed by demonic powers. Remember that the wise men of Egypt were able to imitate some of the miracles that Moses performed in Pharaoh's presence. In describing the end times, Jesus, of which this whole age is the end times, remember? Describing the end times, Jesus said in Matthew 24 these words. Come on, there we go. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In our scripture reading today, we read this uh, verse, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So, so either by trickery or, or by demonic miracles, the second beast will be able to deceive unbelievers through these false signs. And John goes further to describe one of these signs in particular, and that is the image of the beast. The second beast deceives unbelievers into building an image of the first beast, verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Again, that phrase throughout the book refers to the unbelieving world. Those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Again, in, in John's day, there were many magicians in the ancient world who claimed to do this very thing. Uh, one source says belief in statues that spoke and performed miracles is widely attested in ancient literature. One of these claims came from a certain magician named Simon Magus, who professed faith in Christ in Acts chapter 8. Later, Simon proved himself to be a false convert and was eventually labeled as a heretic. But that same Simon once said, I made statues move, I gave breath to inanimate objects. So this, again, might refer to trickery. Uh, this image that comes to life, uh, it could be trickery or sleight of hand. But again, more likely, probably another instance of a miracle that is demonic in nature. And so William Hendrickson offers this throughout this entire dispensation in increasing manner as the coming of the Lord draws near. False prophets, by showing great signs and wonders, shall try to deceive the masses and to strengthen the hand of the government when it bears down upon the church. The third characteristic of the beast, the, the, the beast from the earth, the, uh, the false prophet is deception. Fourthly, the characteristic you've all been waiting for. We come to the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? The second beast, this beast from the earth, causes, of people, causes people of all kinds to bear the mark of the beast. Look at verse 16. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. Note the, note the wide range from all kinds of people to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. The mark that John's talking about um, refers to a, a, the definition of the word in Greek, a mark or stamp engraved, etched, branded, cut, or imprinted. Slaves were marked this way uh, so that they could be identified by the owner should they ever run away. Uh, slaves were marked with their owner's name. Soldiers would be marked like this. So if they ever deserted the Roman army, they would be seen as, as deserters. Worshippers at pagan temples were marked this way, uh, stamped to identify, identify the God they worshipped. And and those who worship the beast from all ages and stations in life are marked in this way. In our study so far of Revelation, we've, we've already seen that Christians are marked in a similar way. We read about this back in chapter 7. It was the first place we saw it. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. We'll see it again next week, this marking of believers in chapter 14. Look it down to verse 1. It says, 
Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Many believe that this group of 144,000 are Jews, sealed, protected by God for the tribulation. But, but I believe this number refers to believers throughout the age. And the reason I believe this is because this same mark, this same seal mentioned in chapter 14, verse 1, is promised to one of the churches back in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, to that church at Philadelphia, the Lord made this promise, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And so we have to keep in mind what this mark of the beast is. It's similar to the mark that believers have, have already received. Each person is marked or sealed with the name of the person who owns him. Believers are marked with the name of God and Christ written on their foreheads, while unbelievers are marked with the name of the beast on theirs. Now I realize that might be difficult to swallow. Pastor Rob, what about this, what about this phrase on the right hand or the forehead? That sounds like a real mark. I mean, it sounds like something you can see. What does that indicate? I think the mention of the right hand or the forehead is similar to what's written to Israel in Deuteronomy 6. Now, referring to the Lord's commandments, Moses said, uh, you shall bind them, the commandments, that is, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And many Orthodox Jews taking this literally uh, have constructed small boxes containing scripture to their foreheads and their hands. They're called phylacteries. I don't know where I can look over here. Here's the one on his forehead, right there. And here's the one, it's not actually on his hand, but the strap goes all the way down to his middle finger. Is that what God meant in Deuteronomy 6? I mean, the box on his head's not even between his eyes. It says, between your eyes. What he probably meant is that his word should be at the forefront of their thinking. His word should be prominent in their thoughts. They should view life and the world around them as if his word was tied between their eyes. It, it, it was to function as a lens. Nor did he probably mean for them to tie boxes on their hands or arms. And what he probably meant there was that his word should affect their actions. That when they stretch out their hand to do something, his word was right there to guide their behavior as though his word was tied to their hand that it would control what they did, that it would affect not only how they viewed the world, but it affected their, how they behaved, how they lived, and what they did with their hands. I think we should read verse 16 in our chapter with the same sense. Uh, 
like Deuteronomy 6, the, the forehead probably refers to a person's mind, the way they think, and the right hand probably re represents their actions of what they do in life. And the followers of the beast are marked by how they think and how they live. Listen to Dr. Beakey sum it up. Receiving the mark of the beast then means that you belong to Satan. Serve him and worship him. The mark is pressed upon the forehead which symbolizes the mind or philosophy of a person or on the right hand symbolizing a person's actions, deeds, trade, and industry. In other words, when people's thinking and actions are controlled by someone who hates Christ, they bear the mark of the beast. Not an actual mark at all, but the way we think and the way we act. The way we think and the way we act demonstrates to the people around us who we belong to. By our thoughts and actions, we reveal that we we're either sealed or marked with God's name or sealed and marked with the name of the beast. And this identifying mark would often prevent believers from being able to buy or sell, as verse 17 says, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The, the believers in the city of Thyatira were prevented from doing business for not worshiping the Roman Empire. It's something very similar to this has taken place in our country when recently many Christians have been taken to court or and sued or have lost their businesses because they refuse in their business to cater to those who worship and serve the beast. So, friend, whose mark do you bear? by the way you think and by the way you act, can people see the mark of Christ on your body or do they see the mark of the beast? You can't deny the obvious. And that's what a young man named Darren discovered according to an article in the Chicago Tribune. Police had a warrant out for Darren for possession of a controlled substance with intent to deliver. And on August 4, 1997, in Champaign, Illinois, police stopped Darren as he left an apartment in, the, in an area of town known for drug trafficking. The police asked his name, and Darren claimed his name was John Henry Jones. The police didn't believe him, however. Like Sherlock Holmes, they were observant. They pointed to a tattoo on his arm. The tattoo said, Darren. Darren, thinking fast, claimed it was the name of his girlfriend. Needless to say, the police weren't fooled and they took him into custody. So you and I often don't own up to how we think or what we do, but like Darren's tattoo, the mark of our owner can't be hidden. It's there for all the world to see. Sooner or later, we'll either people will either see the mark of Christ or the mark of the beast. And so, friend, what's the mark on you? Please listen to Dr. Beakey again. 
It's possible to profess that you belong to the Lamb while thinking and acting like a dragon. When you habitually behave like dragon people, speak like dragon people, or think like dragon people, your profession of faith is false. So, you that claim to know Christ, and you that have maybe grown up in the church, when mom aren't around, mom and dad aren't around, and, and you're letting your hair down with your friends, and you're in those unguarded moments, what mark do your friends see? Do they hear dragon-like speech come out of your mouth? Words you would never say in this company. Words that really aren't appropriate for a person who alleges to have the name of Christ stamped on him. Actions. You know, you finally get your license and are able to get out a little bit, thank God, from under mom and dad's thumb. And letting your hair down with your friends driving around. Those actions reflect that Christ has marked you? Or are those things you do with your right hand, do they show right there who your owner is? And it's the beast. Whose mark are you wearing? This is what the mark is, friends. The person who owns you. Those owned by Christ are sealed, marked with the name of Christ and the name of God. Those marked by the beast have his mark on their thoughts and their actions. This is what identifies them. The mark of the beast, fourth characteristic. Let's move on and catch the final one now. The number, that always controversial number of the beast. Uh, it calls for spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, two things I want to point out here. The first is the spiritual insight required uh, to understand the number. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. John says, here's biblical wisdom. The, the number of the beast cannot be understood by rational human thought. Normal human thought presses, uh, processes. This can only be understood through the insight that's given by God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, someone said God's revelation as it is presented here can be understood only when the reader possesses wisdom given from above through the Holy Spirit. This is why so many people get this twisted. It's because like Peter described, they're attempting to understand what it means without the spiritual insight of God's Spirit. So first, this number requires spiritual understanding that comes through faith in Christ. But then next I want you to see that the number of the beast is the number of man. 
uh, the number of man. Verse 18 goes on to finish. Uh, I'll begin again. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Two ways to translate this last phrase. Uh, verse 18 could read just as it does here in your ESV, for it is the number of a man. Many take that to mean it's the number of a specific man. In other words, that number identifies who the beast is, who John is referring to. And there are many who hold this view, and those that hold this view uh, use the numerical value of Hebrew letters to determine who 666 refers to. And using this letter number system, it's called gematria, that many have arrived at the name Nero Caesar, concluding that Nero is the beast that John's referring to. And the trouble with that is it all depends on how you spell Nero's name whether it's in Greek or Latin or Hebrew, and depending on how you spell it, it doesn't necessarily add up to 666. Aside from that, uh, I think John wrote this book around the year 95, but Nero died in the year 68, 27 years before this was written. So John's probably not referring to uh, the number of a specific man when he says this. Verse 18 could also be translated this way, for it's the number of man. It's the number of humanity. And, and those who hold this view point out that John's been using numbers as symbols all the time throughout the book, and that he's doing it again here. Uh, the number seven is one example of that. We've brought that up numerous times, pun intended. Uh, uh, the number seven is just one example of, of the symbolic use of numbers. Uh, but if seven, as we've said, is the number of completeness, six is the number of incompleteness. Uh, six is not seven. It will never reach seven. It will always fall short of perfection and completeness. And so six then represents all that's imperfect and incomplete, all that's human. And three times, 666 indicates that everything the beast and his kingdom uh, represents is significantly incomplete and constantly falling short. Again, here, this encouraging comment. Six means missing the mark or failure. Seven means perfection or victory. Rejoice, O church of God. The victory is on your side the number of the beast is 666. That is failure upon failure upon failure. It's the number of man for the beast glories in man and must fail. This is the number of the beast. Calls for discernment, spiritual discernment. And it is the number of humanity, of man in general, and represents what is incomplete and falls short. This, friends, is the fourth uh, main character in the holy war, the beast from the earth. And again, we've defined the beast from the earth like this. 
The second beast is the false prophet. It symbolizes false religion, false philosophy, in whichever form these appear throughout the entire dispensation. And we've looked at five characteristics of the beast from the earth. We've seen the appearance of the beast, uh, the lamb-like appearance in its deceptive and earthly nature. We've seen the purpose of the beast is to get unbelievers to fall lockstep into pursuing and worshiping the first beast. And third, we saw the deception, false miracles that the second beast uses. We've talked about the mark of the beast, the stamp that identifies unbelievers. And fifth, the number of the beast, the number of humanity. Let's pray as we close this morning. Christ Jesus, how we need to be strengthened with your grace. Thank you for the truth that you have entrusted to us. The truth of your word. And Father, may we be faithful to take your word into our hearts and minds. Please allow your truth to turn our minds into a steel trap that will not allow any deception through. By your grace and your good spirit in us, do this work and bring us hungry and thirsty to your word every single day of the week. And Father, I pray for those of us who profess to know you, Lord Jesus. Again, by your Spirit who indwells us, and by your grace, let our thoughts and our actions reveal to the world around us that we bear your mark, and not the mark of the beast. Jesus, do this in and among us. Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. In the next few moments, I want to encourage you, if you've not yet picked up uh, the Lord's Supper, that you would do so. There are some in the back, uh, right behind Kate, and there are some at the uh, corner to my left up here on the platform. I, uh, While you uh, get up and uh, take get those God willing this will be the last time we take it like this uh, hope to uh, return to uh, more normal distribution of the elements of the Lord's Supper uh, the great temptation uh, since it's packaged in such a clever way is to think that this is such a clever presentation of the Lord's Supper and to think that it's neat and cool and so hip that we can do it like this when uh, that would be to totally disregard the meaning of these symbols contained here. They're called symbols 
but they're referred to as sacred symbols. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us warnings. Don't take this without recognizing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Don't take this without recognizing that this bread, perforated and broken, represents his body that was broken for us on the cross. And don't take this without acknowledging and recognizing that this grape juice in here represents the blood that was poured out for the payment of our sins upon that tree. Uh, that is to acknowledge the Lord, that these represent his work for us on the cross. Let me just, as I have done, and perhaps you're tired of me reading this portion, but it's so vital just that we remind ourselves of, of these spirit-inspired directions that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So allow me to pray for us and return thanks for the elements and please wait uh, so that we can take these elements together as a body. The prayer I'm going to pray is from the Valley of Vision, uh, this little devotional prayer book that many of us have recommended it to you. Very appropriate prayer on the Lord's Supper, something different from what you usually hear uh, from up front. So please listen, and as you're able, uh, hear the heart of this worshiper crying out for the Lord to bless this means of grace to his soul and to his heart. Let's pray then. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear this tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior while I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love 
Receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, and redemption. And receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feet. Amen. So if you would, take your chalice and turn it and expose the bread on the bottom. Christ's body broken for you. Let's take the bread. Now, if you'll turn your cup over and peel away the foil and expose the juice. The blood of Christ shed for you. Let's take the cup together. Do bring us nourishment from this means of grace, Christ Jesus. And make the celebration of your death and payment for our sin precious to our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we uh, dismiss the day and sing, What Can Wash Away My Blood? Do you have a song?